Good morning. So as we begin class with prayer this morning, we received a a prayer request from one of our online listeners, uh, Dorothy Dunbar, who has been listening and watching quite some time online, many years, big supporter, and uh, she has uh, been diagnosed with colon cancer and is going uh, undergoing chemo and radiation therapy and just asked for our prayers. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study, and you are such a good God who has created the universe to live in harmony with your character and methods of love, and we ask that your spirit of love and truth will join us today, and we want to lift up Dorothy before you and ask that your healing agencies will will step in to her life as you know is best and and bring about uh, the intervention and outcome that you know is best for her and her family. Bring them comfort and peace knowing that you're involved. May we see you soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. So, Before we get started with the lesson, I received this email um, recently, and it's a short one. It says, I am a pastor of 34 years and have read hundreds, if not thousands, of books through the years, but none have blessed me as your books. I've read them all, the most recent being The God-Shaped Heart and The Journal of the Watcher. I'm also delighting in daily readings of The Remedy. Absolutely wonderful. I have found in you one that I find deep harmony in so many biblical truths that are not a part of the accepted evangelical legal theological outlook. Thank you so much for your passion for God's truth and your courage to speak out against much that is counted as untouchable orthodoxy and is yet so deficient and distortive of God's actual intention and and redundant revelation. So I really appreciated that. So we're doing lesson number two in the quarter of the book of Acts, and the uh, title is Pentecost. What is Pentecost, and what happened? Pentecost refers today in Christianity to the commemoration of the day when the Holy Spirit came upon the followers of Jesus with new power, enabling, equipping them to spread the healing remedy that Jesus procured. That's what we refer to when we refer to Pentecost today. Sunday's lesson, first paragraph, it says, In obedience to Jesus' command, the believers waited in Jerusalem for the promise of the Spirit. And they waited amid fervent prayer, sincere repentance, and praise. When the day came, they were all together in one place, and probably the same, probably the same large upper room of Acts 1. Soon, however, they would move to a more public area. Any lessons for us in this? Do we have within ourselves the ability to fill God's purpose? Notice they were waiting together for something. Waiting. Do we, do we today need equipping, educating, enlightening, ennobling, empowering by God's Spirit in order to be successful agents for God's plan? With that in mind, is there a strategy the devil might use to tempt good people. Now, I'm not talking about the people who reject God. I'm not talking about the people who harden their heart against God. I'm talking about the the people who who identify themselves as working for God. Is is there a strategy the devil might use to tempt good people to forego this equipping? Yes. And I'm going to go through some that I think some people might fall into. How about not realizing they need it? I didn't know. You actually read about that in Acts. What baptism did you experience? I had the baptism of John. How about being too busy with good things? Too busy with good things. That's a classic. Yeah. How about replacing the working of the Holy Spirit with the working of false spirits? So that you believe you have the Holy Spirit, but it's actually not the Holy Spirit. You think, well, that can't happen. Or could that happen? How can you then tell if that could happen, the work of the Holy Spirit, from the work of a false spirit? Is that a reasonable question to ask? Yeah. And I want to give you some testing tools that you can use. 
The Holy Spirit is the spirit of and and love. Okay. Thus, the work of the Holy Spirit will always be in harmony with and bring forth more truth and love. Does that reality then provide, just being awareness, the Holy Spirit will always bring forth more truth and more love. Does that reality give an insight as how we might be able to discern? How, how could you use that to discern? Well, your attitude towards others, even maybe what you consider your enemies if you don't love them. Okay, so not having love for your enemies, that would be great. Okay. False spirits will not be concerned with truth, will not want to move forward in the truth, or will use facts and truths in unloving ways. So they can take truths or facts, but use them in unloving ways. Yes or no? And I think one of the big ones is that the, 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 spirit, the false spirits want to establish a certain kind of network of truth, so-called, but lock in on it and not move and resist any other advancements. That's not the spirit of the Holy Spirit. The, this Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth that we, it says in Thessalonians that the, the, the wicked are lost because they did not love the truth. So they didn't have a love for truth and truth is advancing and, and we have a love to grow, advance and move forward, not stay stuck in a certain set of ideas or truths. How about false spirits will use love to avoid truth? Not wanting to hurt someone's feelings or not allowing, not allowing natural divisions to occur when truth comes to bear. Is that really love? That's right, but that's what they think. It's not love, it's sentimentalism, it's emotionalism, it's codependency. But in their mind, we don't want to hurt somebody, we don't want fracture, and so we allow what we believe truth to not be applied because it would cause someone to get their feelings hurt. It might cause someone to walk away. How about this? The false spirits will use their so-called adherence to truth to enforce orthodoxy, rules, doctrines in such a way as to injure and divide. In other words, they will injure, divide, particularly requiring others to conform lest some authoritarian consequence be applied. Notice, the, 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 the false spirit uses power to enforce and to inflict. The true spirit presents truth and love, but leaves other people free to choose. The false spirit would urge compromise with principles in order to prevent someone from leaving. Well, they're going to leave if we go down this trail. So let's not go down this trail. Let, let's stick with what we've always done. Because those people might be offended, so we'll stick with what we've always done. That's, that's the false spirit. The true spirit presents the truth in love and say, this is where we're going and we love you and want you to come with us, but if you don't want, you're free to leave. That's not the spirit of, I'm going to use my power to make you do it or else. Do you see the subtle differences here? The true spirit would lovingly present persuasive evidence to convert, but allow someone else to leave freely. The false, the false spirit would punish those who leave. If you leave, we're not going to talk to you, we're not going to care for you. Evaluate the fruits of the Spirit described in Scripture. Do you see those fruits manifest in how people conduct themselves? Evaluate the message being taught about God and God's methods. Will God empower people with the Spirit to misrepresent Him? No. So if you understand God's character is revealed in Christ and people are presenting a different view than Christ revealed, 
then maybe it's not the Spirit, Holy Spirit empowering them. Okay, so we're, we're talking about strategies that might tempt people to forgo the equipping. One was not realizing they need it. Two, replacing the work of the Holy Spirit with a false spirit. What about a person who's being so enthusiastic, so happy, so on fire for the Lord, that they're so excited about sharing what they've experienced that they would be tempted to go out on their own without pausing for the equipping? Could that be a temptation? In other words, could we ever get ahead of the Lord's timing? Uh, I'm going to tell you, I struggle with this one. This is one I'm tempted on. I really am. I really get struggle with this one. I have such strong desire, such strong passion to see the message spread, to see hearts change, to see the world light, to see Christ come, that I, I sometimes get impatient, I want to push and push and push. And I have to, okay, come go have a talk with the Lord. Okay, Lord, I need to be patient. Wait for your timing for the doors to open. <laughs> okay, so that's one I get tempted with. But there can be the opposite side where you wait and wait and wait eternally. <laughs> like Moses when he was at the Red Sea, God said, why are you standing here? Well, that, that, that's brilliant, Linda. You see, that's my next thing in my notes. Where's the balance between the Lord's equipping and timing with simply waiting and never moving forward in faith? That's the next question. There was a song by a Christian group named Petra. The lyrics were based on the story of Israel and the Ark of the Covenant. And the lyrics went, the waters never part until your feet get wet. <laughs> Remember the story, how they, would, uh, step, they had to step into the water and then the waters would part. So there is an aspect of God's action in our lives to open the way that requires our action first. They had to step in the water and then God acts to part. So I, I think, Linda, we need to ask the question, how do you know where that balance is? The waiting for the equipping versus the stepping out and acting in faith. Where's the balance? I'm looking to the class for wisdom here. <laughs> I think that's where being open to the leading. Jesus it's, uh, said, Jesus never made any plans for himself. He went to his father every single morning and asked, what is my duty for today? Lead me where you want me to go. Say what, you know, what do you want me to say to people? Every day, if we did that, God would then say, time to go. So, so how would you apply that to your child growing up? Your child's going away to college, and you say, you sh- you, well, you shouldn't actually plan to go to college. You should just wait and wait one day and see if the Holy Spirit moves you to go to college. And then when you go, you shouldn't plan on what classes to take and what degree to, to organize. And you shouldn't plan for the financing of it. And you shouldn't put money aside when your child is small to plan for their education when they're larger. Um, we, uh, and, and then each morning, should they get up and say, well, Lord, you know, uh, the weather says it might rain today, but, uh, you know, do I need to kick my umbrella or should I not take my umbrella? I, I don't want to move out without your direction first. Um, you know, this idea that I don't start the day without actually, I have no plans for the day, just wide open, just to be, you know, someone to kind of reach in and, and pull little strings for me. Is that, is that what you're saying we should do? No, I'm just saying that each day, the specifics of that day will be shown to you if you're open to the Lord every day. Again, how do you apply that in real life today? Yes. Uh, well, this morning I usually pray to be of service to somebody to bring glory to God. So I don't know who I'm going to meet during the day. So sometimes I just try to be open for the opportunity. And, and there are times when I am just thinking, I don't know if I should talk to that person. And, you know, I might... For, have this feeling that I probably should, there's all of a sudden this nagging feeling comes and it ends up being like this moment that this person really needed help. So you said that uh, he had no plans for the day. That was a quote. And, and quotes like that can be really misunderstood and misconstrued. For instance, do we read in Scripture where Christ actually had plans? They would say to him, he would say to them, I'm going to have to go up to Jerusalem where I'm going to be tormented by men and crucified and on the third day I'm going to rise again. Now, did he say that before that very day? Or only on the day it was happening did he say it? 
before. So he had plans that were unfolding. And so, how, so, so this idea that he had no plans other than what happened that day is not really consistent with his plan that he was carrying out. So there's a balance we have to put in there because some people will take that very concretely, very literally, and they make no plans. But he had a plan. He had a mission, a vision. He knew where he was going. But he was open to the day-to-day, as you say, maybe um, divine appointments, some people call them, meeting a particular person that wasn't on his personal agenda for that day. He was open to interact in a way. But still, that was all under the umbrella of the plan that he was on. Uh, you had a hand, yes. Yeah, I, I, I just try and pray and, and think about it and use my, my brain and and reason to see what would, I think is the best thing to do and then actually go and do it but still keep myself open to God shutting the door. So I think just being aware that just because I've started to do something doesn't mean I have to necessarily continue and complete that. If the door starts to close, then I should reevaluate and step back and maybe change what I'm doing. I like that, yes. But then when do you know if it's God stopping the door or the devil trying to obstruct it? <laughs> That's a great question, yeah. Um, like sometimes though I will have kind of have a plan of what you know grocery shop things like that and all of a sudden I get way behind and I'm not doing it in the hours I wanted to do and I end up being at some store where someone had just forgotten their purse and I just was able to grab her and if I had been there a half hour early I never would have seen this woman I get experiences like that a lot where it's like God interrupts my plans to fit his timing to help people. And so do we allow for that? So when our per- current daily schedule may not be unfolding, that we don't get irritable. It's like my schedule days in your hands, Lord. And I had to learn this one. With my office schedule, I, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty punctual person. I'm really, really, I'm not one of these people. If I'm, if I'm on time, I'm 15 minutes late. So, okay? See, I, I, that's kind of how I run. And, uh, and so I, I used to get really bent around the axle if, if my schedule, but I've really kind of learned to say, Lord, my schedule's in your hand today. If things don't go exactly okay, and I've learned to be much more at ease about that kind of stuff for what you're saying, for allying for other things that I'm not aware of. It says, at Pentecost, uh, at Pentecost, what would you say was the primary purpose of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit? What did the Holy Spirit want to accomplish at Pentecost? For the people to spread the gospel, to give them the knowledge, the, the, Fortitude to go forth to do it. For what purpose? Yes, I agree. To spread the gospel, but the spreading gospel is for a purpose, right? And the purpose of spreading the gospel is? Save mankind. There we go. It was really, be very clear about this. Many people stop at the, at the action, but not the, the, the goal of the action. And then the action becomes all important. We've got to go out, we've got to spread the gospel. It doesn't matter if people are saved or not. It doesn't matter if we burn people to stake or not. As long as we present the gospel to them, we've done our mission. No, the purpose of spreading the gospel, right, is to, this, to, to heal and save people, to free people from bondage uh, of, of sin and selfishness. And the Holy Spirit was being poured out to equip people and enable people to take a healing message that would free hearts and minds. We call that the gospel. But sometimes the mission can be, take on a life of its own, and we forget the purpose of the mission. It's interesting that they weren't in a large group being entertained by one speaker. Uh, it was just a small group in a room sharing probably their own experiences, their own troubles. But there was often a leader, like you read about Paul, Paul, but it was, it was more like this. It was more like this, discussional, open to, to questions back and forth, like this. It was not what you're talking about, like the traditional service where you have a speaker and, and, and interaction with the audience was not permitted. You know, you're exactly right. Which, even when we have small groups, you know, we're not always in unity. Well, and uh, when we say in unity, does that mean they all were thinking the same thing? No, but I think they were all waiting 
the same thing. Okay, so, you know, General Patton used to say, if everybody's thinking the same thing, somebody's not thinking. <laughs> Isn't that great? Yeah. Yes. Do you think God wants us all to think the same thing? No. No. He wants us all to have the same character, same heart of love, same compassion, same honesty, same integrity, same loyalty, same trust in him, but have completely different ideas and thoughts and, and dreams, aspirations and perspectives and creativity. Exactly, yeah. Okay. So what about today? What is the Spirit's goal today? We talked about the goal at Pentecost. What about today? Same. 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 Two. Save people. Thank you. Yes, brilliant. To save people, to free people. That's right. So what are the barriers to the work of the Holy Spirit today? The people not allowing it to work in their lives. People not allowing the Spirit to work in their lives. What would stop people from that? How about lies? Lies. The most devastating lies about God. The methods of God are like the methods of the world. Thus, it's righteous for God to kill and torture people who don't love him. That's never taught in Christianity, is it? That doesn't work. It only hardens hearts, turns people away from God. God is a source of pain and suffering who needs appeasement. Spiritual discernment is, how about this one? Spiritual discernment is a strong feeling. You don't think that's taught? It's wrong, that's right. Spiritual discernment is not a strong feeling. Uh, how about this? Uh, faith is believing without evidence or believing what you know is not sensible. But I have faith. And usually things that make God out to look terrible, like our loved ones who, who have not accepted God will suffer for all eternity in the torments of hell and the most agonizing pain possible, but we'll be in heaven and be blissfully happy while they're suffering for all eternity. Do you know that's what most of Christianity teaches? Do you realize how nonsense that is? Oh, but we just take that on faith. When I present this to people who hold that idea, they'll say, well, God's ways aren't our ways. I just have to take that on faith. I just have to trust how do they trust somebody that would allow that to happen? Well, it's just loving. I just have to believe it. Or this one. Our loved ones who die are in a, in a saved relationship with Jesus, are in heaven in a conscious state of awareness of everything that is happening on earth, and the mothers who have died see their children put in foster care, molested, abused, kidnapped, murdered, sex trafficked, and yet they're happy in heaven. Because heaven's a happy place. And to a funeral like that. She just said, I went to a funeral like that. Do you really, really? This is nonsense. And maybe it's not even that. I I gave it graphic, horrible things that are hard. But how about it's just, you see your child struggle with the grief and the heartache of losing their mother. You see the child just struggling with the the frustrations of life. They, They get married and their husband mistreats them. They go through a divorce. They get cancer. They suffer. They're in pain. Just the struggles that we see that we consider pretty normal even. You think you're happy watching your child go through that in heaven. No. These ideas make no sense. Well, I just take that on faith. What about creeds, rules, organizational affiliation? Could membership in a church institution be an obstacle to the work of the Holy Spirit? Could a person have the idea that their salvation, their security with God, depends upon membership in the organization? Could such an idea actually cause a person to resist the leading of the Holy Spirit? Well, consider, and I want everyone to think about, let me, let me, could your affiliation with your church be an obstacle to the Holy Spirit working in your life? Yes. Well, I'm going to read you a story. 
out of Scripture. It's John chapter 9. I'm going to cut in the middle of the story. This is the story of the man who was born blind, and Christ heals the man born blind. The Sadducees, Pharisees didn't like the fact that he was going around telling Jesus healed him and wanted him to change his story, and they brought the parents in. If you remember, they brought the parents in. And this is picking up in John 9, verse 20. We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind, but how he can see now... Or who opened his eyes? We don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. Now listen to verse 22. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. That was why the parents said, ask him. He's of age. Was their membership, was these parents' membership in their church organization? And let's ask the question. Was this organization set up by God? The, the, the nation of Israel. So this church organization they're members of were, was set up and blessed by God with the oracles of God, with the scriptures of God, with the teachings of God. So they're belonging to the church that God put on earth. And was their membership in the church that God called for the advent of the Messiah interfering with the work of the Holy Spirit in their life? Get your mind around that. Have you ever considered that? <coughs> why, though? Now ask Why? Why did their concern for the organizational church and their good standing in it undermine their willingness to allow the Holy Spirit to lead them to speak the truth? They were unwilling to speak the truth because of their concern for the organizational church and what the organizational church would think of them. Is that not what we just read? Why? Why would that be? Well, as you think about that, we'll pick that up after this quote. I found this quote in the book called Desire of Ages. Um, Commenting on the history of Christianity. Tell me what you think. Page 232. As the light and life of men was rejected by the ecclesiastical authorities in the days of Christ, so it has been rejected in every succeeding generation. Pause. Who's being referred to as ecclesiastical authorities? Church leadership. Church leadership. Do we have evidence, before we even go on, that throughout history, leaders in organized churches have repeatedly rejected truth? Would this be a concern today? Keep going with the quote. Again and again, the history of Christ's withdrawal from Judea has been repeated. When the reformers preached the word of God, they had no thought of separating themselves from the established church. But the religious leaders would not tolerate the light, and those that bore it were forced to seek another class who were longing for the truth. In our day, few of the professed followers of the reformers are actuated by their spirit. Now, in our day, who would really put themselves out as being the, the, the last link in the reformatory chain? Who claims that position? The Seventh-day Adventist Church, particularly. Yeah, that's what they can. In our day, few of the professed followers of the reformers are actuated by their spirit. Few are listening to the voice of God and ready to accept truth in whatever guise it may be presented. Often those who follow in the steps of the reformers are forced to turn away from the churches they love in order to declare the plain teaching of the word of God. And many times those who are seeking for light are by the same teaching obliged to leave the church of their fathers that they may render obedience. Where are we to place our trust? In God or in the church institution? 
even if we are convinced that the church institution was established by God, are we still to place our trust in God and not the institution? It was established by God, but it's humans that are running it. So humans are involved, too. For me, it comes down to a question of authority. You know, that we have all seen that bumper sticker that says, question authority. And I just always want to know where the real authority for whatever comes to me is coming from. So ultimate authority resides in? Truth. Truth. And, God, and of course, all truth originates in? God, so God, of course, is the ultimate authority, not because of power and sovereignty in a human sense, dictatorially, but because he is the source of all that's real, all that's true, all that's right. That's what's authoritative to truth. So what makes people vulnerable to choosing loyalty to the institution rather than following the, the, the spirit of truth? What makes people vulnerable to that? Fear of losing friends. Fear of losing friends. The lack of knowledge of the truth. Lack of knowledge. So, okay, fear of being wrong then. Well, I might be wrong. Trusting others with your own thinking and decision-making. Oh, well, they've gone to the seminary. They're the pastor. They're the Lord's anointed. Well, the, 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 the 27th theologians got together and studied this for seven years. Um, you know, I, I, I'm just a high school graduate. Who am I to question what those, those learned men have concluded? Are people vulnerable to this? So not developing the ability for themselves to discern truth from error. Hebrews 5.14, the mature are those who have developed by practice the ability to discern the right from the wrong. And I'm going to say this one. A desire to feel safe. A desire to feel secure. Resulting from group acceptance and that sense of being part of the herd. Yep, the that, that, hey, everybody else believes this. All these people have reinforcement. All these people validated. We have a collectively, I feel safe in the group. By the way, this is why the church has failed the LGBT community and why the LGBT community has such power over young people who are struggling with sexual identity issues. This issue, meaning group the LGBT community accepts them as they are and loves them and encourages them and embraces them and says, you're part of us. Come in. It doesn't matter you're flawed. It doesn't matter you're scared. It doesn't matter you've got this problem. You're struggling with that problem. You've got an addiction. You're not sure who you are. We love you. Come in. The church says, until you get your life straight, you're disgusting to us. We hate you. You can't be in membership here. We're not going to baptize you. And, and there's no security for them. There's no sense of safety. There's no sense of being loved. So my view on this whole relationship with the church organization, I think, I'm going to tell you my personal view, belong to a church organization. Pick one. Belong to one. Organizations have value. We can, we can uh, pull resources. We can create ministries. We can uh, have educational systems, healthcare systems, uh, uh, orphanages, all kinds of, of missions and ministries we can do organizationally you can't do as an individual. So belong to an organization. Absolutely. Support an organization. Ask the Holy Spirit to lead where he'd have you work. But don't let the organization do your thinking for you. Be your own individual. Think with your own mind. Come to your own conclusion. Recognize also that your salvation is in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Your salvation is not belonging to the institution. 
Remember, all the apostles were basically ostracized and kicked out of the, 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 the nation of Israel the, or, the, or the sanctuary. They were, they were, when they showed up there, they would arrest them and take them. It's like, no, you can't be part of this church. We weren't lost for that. Yes, Linda. Do you think there's value in people who have picked an institution to be part of to try to be leavened in that institution? That is, you know, uh, how successful might they be? Are there any evidences of success of people not leaving institutions because they feel like they're, you know, straying or something, but to be part of the institution in order to help direct it to the uh, better path? My personal experience and observing the biblical model and the model from history is, Yes, as long as your focus is on people in the institution, the people you fellowship with, the people you socialize with, and you're reaching them with truth and not on institutional reformation, going through the politics of the institution to get in committee, the politics to vote certain policies and certain new creeds and certain new belief fundamental systems and certain new practices organizationally. If you spend your energy there, I think you're wasting your energy. And I think that's a trap of the devil. But yes, yeah, staying in the institution so that you can, this is what the apostles did. Jesus, do you see Jesus going to the Sanhedrin and trying to get their authorization for his mission? Or the apostles. He never spent time trying to convince leadership to endorse, to sign off, to give the stamp of approval. He just went to the people. And so did the apostles. They just went to the people. And of course, Jesus focused and said, stay, stay here first in Jerusalem. In other words, focus on the, this church group first in the organization, but not through the institutional mechanisms of the organization. Am I making myself clear on that? Yeah, so yes, but not, I think one of the problems is we can be tempted to get into the church politic. Well, let's get this person and let's get that and let's get this procedure going. Now, if you happen to be in office, if the Lord has put you in a position of office, like Samuel, Eli, He's put you in a position of office, then let's carry out that position of office fully practicing, implementing, and using your office to promote what you understand to be the true gospel message. But if you do that, you'll get fired. <laughs> <coughs> yes? You said several times that God established the things and then people run it. Would it be a true statement to say that sometimes Satan don't put up some of these things? to pull people away, or to trick people in, and then that's the downfall? Yes, absolutely. Yes, Satan does put up all kinds of things to trip people up and pull them away. If I understood your question right, yes. Did I understand the question right? Yeah, okay. So let's, let's go on to the fourth paragraph. We're going to read the fourth and fifth paragraph. Um, the Spirit always has been at work. Its influence on God's people in Old Testament times have often revealed in a notable way it was also revealed in a notable way, never in its fullness. During the patriarchal age, the influence of the Holy Spirit had often been revealed in a marked manner, but never in its fullness. Now, in obedience to the word of the Savior, the disciples offered their supplications for this gift, and in heaven, Christ added his intercession. He claimed the gift of the, spe of the Spirit that he might pour it upon the people. John the Baptist foretold the baptism with the Spirit by the coming of the Messiah, and Jesus himself referred to it several times. The outpouring would be his first intercessory act before God. At Pentecost, the promise was fulfilled. So what about this? What lens are you looking through as you read this? What presuppositions, premises do you have before you... What about this idea of intercession described here? What does it actually mean? 
So I looked up, uh, so we understand what intercession, and as the word means, the word means uh, to uh, intercede for somebody who is in trouble, often by a plea or a request. That's what the word means. Who's in trouble? In this context of the plan of salvation, who's in trouble? Human beings. Okay. What kind of trouble? What is the problem that sin caused that the plan of salvation is designed to fix? Is our problem with God? No. Does God have something in his character, in his attitude, in his being that needs Jesus to adjust? No. Does God's law need fixing? No. Does the condition of humankind after Adam see Adam and Eve's sin need fixing? Yes. Then how is Christ interceding before God if the problem is in us? How do we understand that? Does God need to be persuaded to give us his blessings, his spirit, his love? Is that what's going on? No. Is that how it's often taught? Yes, that's how people read this. Well, we wouldn't have had the Spirit except Jesus went out there and begged his dad for it, and his dad said, okay, because I love you, I guess I'll let you have it. (laughs) If Jesus were not pleading before his Father, would that mean the Father would not bless us? So do we understand what it means for God so loved the world that he waited until he was pleaded with and then decided to give in to the begging? and gave his only begotten son. Is that what we hear that? What about what Jesus said in John 16, 24 through 29? Though I have been speaking figuratively, figuratively, figures of speech, metaphors, symbols, parables, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my father. In that day you will ask in my name. I am not saying that I will ask the father on your behalf. I am not saying last on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I'm leaving the world to go back to the Father. The, then the disciples said, now you are speaking clearly and without figures of speech. So Jesus said this is clear. The apostle said this is clear. And what's the clear thing? I'm not going to ask the Father for you. Hmm. So if Jesus is not going to ask the Father for us, then what do we make of John 14, 16? Where Jesus says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. So he says, I'm not going to go and ask the Father for you. But he says in John 14, I'm going to go and ask the Father, and he'll give you another counselor. What's he asking for? Okay, what's he asking for? So, uh... In relation to John fourteen sixteen, I will ask the Father for you and give you another counselor. This is from the SDA Bible commentary on that verse. Uh, and you know, the counselor in some versions is, is translated comforter. Comforter, Greek parakletos, a word used in the New Testament only by John. It is made up of a preposition para, uh, meaning beside, and the adjective kletos, called or one called, hence the literal meaning one called to the side of. However, the scripture Usage of the word seems to reflect more of an active sense, such as is found in the corresponding verb parakaleo, to exhort, to comfort, hence one who exhorts. The Latin fathers translated parakletos to advocatos, advocatos, Latin. But the technical meaning of advocate or lawyer applies to only a few of the rare occurrences of the word in pre-Christian and non-Christian literature. The word advocate is not entirely appropriate to describe 
the work of either the Holy Spirit or Christ. The Father and Son work in the fullest cooperation for the salvation of man. It is Satan's work to present the Father as stern and harsh and unwilling to forgive the sinner and is unwilling to forgive and is willing to forgive only upon the intercession of his Son. That's Satan's work. It is true that the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Christ made forgiveness possible, but both the Father and the Son love the sinner and work in unison for his salvation. An advocate in the human sense of the term is not needed to induce the Father to have mercy on the sinner. I agree with this completely. Do we have ideas that interpret Jesus' intercession as pleading to the Father for us? That's wrong. So how do we harmonize then these texts? Yes. Continue. I, I had an issue with the other, the other presupposition that the Holy Spirit was not working in its fullness before Pentecost. No, that was in the paragraph. Yes. In the Old Testament. But let, let's finish with this, yeah, this, this piece. With so how do we harmonize this? Will you remember Romans chapter 8? I'm not going to read. Yes. I, I'm just wondering if Jesus' intercession, we ought to just flipped it around. Maybe he's not begging the Father. Maybe he's begging us, pleading with us. Exhorting us. I like that very much. I like that very much. I like that very much. But then what did Jesus mean when he said, I'm going to ask the Father for a counsel and another comforter for you? I, I like what you're saying. I don't disagree with that. I think there's evidence of that, but I'm going to ask the Father, and he's going to send a comforter. In Africa, where we live and work, often conflicts are resolved through using an intermediary because you can't confront someone directly, just as a culture. So if I have a problem with my wife, I would have someone there... And I would talk to that person, and then that person, and then she would talk to that person. So we would be talking to each other directly, we'd kind of be going through them, just to kind of ease the tension of direct confrontation. So maybe, in that sense, he's asking or acting more as an intermediary. To ease the tension? We still have, we've got that fear and shame that came as a result of the fall, so we have a hard time approaching God directly ourselves, and so maybe to ease that tension... And so he's asking not because... He I like everything you say, but that doesn't really answer the... Why is he at, what's he asking the Father for? We'll get, so, so, Romans 8. If you remember Romans 8, and I think we need to throw that in. In Romans 8, I'm not going to read the whole 26 through um, 36. That's 10 verses. I'm not going to read it. But it says in the early part that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groans and utterances we can't understand. And then it says, in starting in 31, if the Father is for us, who could be against us? He who didn't spare us, somebody gave him up. How we not along with him give us all things. And Christ is also, that the Father's right hand and is also interceding for us, in addition to. So in one passage here, we have the Holy Spirit, the Father, and the Son, all three interceding for us. In Romans 8. So then how do we put all this together? Well, who needed persuading, God or you and me? Who needed recreating in righteousness, God or you and me? Who needed enlightening with the truth, God or you and me? Who needed the law of love restored in our hearts, God or you and me? Then, as you're saying, who, to whom does Christ need to intercede, God or you and me? Then why ask the Father? How about this? For the same reason a surgeon sticks out his hand and asks the scrub nurse for a scalpel. Think that through. Why does the surgeon reach out and stick his ask the scrub nurse for the scalpel? What are their roles? Because it's time in the salvation process for Christ to wield the power of the Holy Spirit in a, in a new way, and God the Father is the source of all, and Christ is the agent through 
whom God's purposes are carried out, and the Spirit is the actualizer who makes it applicable in living beings. So Jesus returns to heaven and says to the Father, Father, I've completed the work you've given me to do. I've made you known unto men. I've exposed Satan as a liar and a fraud. I've destroyed the infection of fear and selfishness and developed a perfect sinless human character. Now, Father, it's time to wield the Spirit to complete our plan. It's time to dispense the Spirit to take all that I've achieved and apply it in the hearts and minds of those who trust me. When the Father says, right you are. Well done, son. Let's free our children from Satan's power and heal them and bring them home. What do you think? I think it could have been done instantly. How? What do you mean by what, what could have been done instantly? In other words, I don't think Christ is still up in the holy place or whatever, interceding for us before God. Why would he have to do it for this long time? I mean, he could have done it just... Okay, so what do we understand interceding to be that we just went through? Who's being interceded with? Who doesn't know the truth? Who doesn't trust God? Who's got carnal nature? Who's got lies they believe? So who needs to be interceded with? So can, can God instantly, by the use of might and power, persuade human beings that he's trustworthy? Instantly. No. 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 In fact, the whole Testament is evidence that might and power does not win people to trust. The flood was might and power. And then after the flood, we have the Tower of Babel because they trusted God or they didn't trust him. At Ten plagues of Egypt. Do we see power at the ten plagues of Egypt? Forty days later, what are they doing? Building a golden calf because they trust God or they don't trust him. And then the rumblings for the 40 years. And then Mount Carmel, might and power. And then after Mount Carmel, do we see the children of Israel trusting God and being loyal after that or they're back into rebellion again? And thus Zechariah says, not by might nor by power, but by the way the Spirit works. So it can't be done in an instant because what God's trying to achieve is he wants our love, he wants our trust, he wants our loyalty, he wants our devotion, he wants our friendship, and that can only be won by truth presented in love, leaving people free. And that takes time for the truth to do its work in intelligent beings. Yes? The way it was worded, it kind of sounds like going along with how Jesus said, I do not do anything of my own accord. So it was like he was saying, I'm going to ask the Father because I trust him. And if I trust him, you can trust him. Oh, I like that aspect of it. Very much so. You had a, Yes? Wait, why did Jesus say it's better that I leave? Because? Because if he was really the one interceding to us, to t- tell us about God, to, to plead with us. He's one person. And then, but when the Holy Spirit came, and the Holy Spirit came into, then every single person who has the Holy Spirit can become that intercessor, pleading with other human beings on God's behalf. This is what he's really like. So, so the Holy Spirit, the Bible uses metaphors. Here's a metaphor. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, I, I will come in and sup with them and he with me. This is not a physical door. It's a metaphor for what? The door to our hearts. Now, what does the Holy Spirit use to knock on the door? Love and truth. Haven't your heart, haven't your heart been impacted by love and truth? Okay? It's love and truth. The Spirit of love and truth knocks on the door of your heart. Okay? So why was it important for Christ to leave? If Christ was here physically on earth today, would people be in their personal journey, studying the scriptures, reaching their heart out, asking for the Spirit to come in, or would they be seeking a personal audience with Jesus? And so it was expedient for him to leave because he couldn't be everywhere. And he wanted that the Spirit to come to do in everybody who was willing. And he could actually have a more worldwide impact than the physical Jesus isolated in one physical location. So I think you're right. So what do you think of this quotation from a book called Amazing Grace? You know, the same author that was quoted in the lesson that we just read. I'm going to read it straight with no comment. 
And while I'm reading it, I want you to think, how are you hearing it? What filters are going through your mind? What processes? What understanding? What concepts are jumping to your mind? What ideas? And then we're going to go through it section by section and unpack it. See what you think about this quote. See if, and, and, and then I want you to think it through because then when I unpack it, see if we came to the same place. God's appointments and grants in our behalf are without limit. The throne of grace is itself the highest attraction because occupied by one who permits us to call him father. But God did not deem the principle of salvation complete while invested only with his own love. By his appointment, he has placed at the altar an advocate clothed with our nature. As our intercessor, his office work is to introduce us to God as his sons and daughters. Christ intercedes in behalf of those who have received him. To them he gives power by virtue of his own merits to become members of the royal family, children of the heavenly king. And the father demonstrates his infinite love for Christ who paid our ransom by, with his blood by receiving and welcoming Christ's friends as his, as his friends. He is satisfied with the atonement made. He is glorified by the incarnation, the life, death, and mediation of his son. Have you heard things like that before? But you can still see it both ways. I, beautifully done. Yes, you could see it both ways, depending on which law you believe before you read the quote. Now, I'm going to unpack this through design law lens and see what you think. God's appointments and grants in our behalf are without limit. By the way, what is a grant? Is it a loan? No. Yeah, I remember, I remember going to school. I always wanted the grant. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't want the loan. I wanted the grant. <laughs> right? Yes. Something we don't have to pay back, right? <laughs> okay. His grants are without limit. Get your mind around that. Without limit. The throne of grace is itself the highest attraction because occupied by one who permits us to call him father. But God did not deem the principle of salvation complete while invested only with his own love. Exactly. Let that breathe a little bit. Yeah, let that, yeah. He said, let that breathe a little bit. Whoa. Uh, God's infinite love wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. Exactly right. The principle, though. What's what's a principle? The principle of salvation. What's a principle? You're using the word law. Okay, That, that word can be very misconstrued as rules or law of gravity, law of health, laws of physics. Principle. What is it? Design protocols. Laws of upon which reality function. Design law, what we call that. Pro, uh, so, a design protocol and the protocol for saving, healing, and restoring to God's design, i.e. salvation, that design is not complete with love only. Something else is needed besides love to complete the design the principle of salvation. What was needed besides love? Well, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of? Ah, truth and love. Is truth necessary as a principle in addition to love for the plan of salvation? Is it? Why? Why? Lies believed break the circle of love and trust. And broken love and trust result in fear and selfishness, the carnal nature. And therefore, God cannot free us from fear and selfishness as long as we believe lies. So his love is part of it, but also the truth has to destroy the lies to win us back to trust. 
See if you, this idea that I've just given you will help you with the next part of the quote. By his appointment, he has placed at his altar an advocate clothed with our nature. As our intercessor, his office work is to introduce us to God as his sons and daughters. What is Christ interceding to do? Introduce us us to God. Does that mean he is is interceding to bring information about us to the Father that the Father doesn't already know, or to bring us the knowledge of God that we don't know? When it says to introduce us to God, how many times have you read something like that and thought, when we get to heaven, Jesus will be at our side and walk us up and say, Father... Okay, I died for this one. My blood covered this one. It's okay. Let me let, me let you meet him. And we feel real safe because Jesus is there to protect us. How many of you thought about it this way? I remember reading stuff like this as a kid, and it's exactly how I thought about it. It was wrong. That's why Jesus said, you say, who is it? Think about that, God. Does God have some deficiency in his knowledge about us? Do we have some deficiency in our knowledge about him? then who needs to be introduced to whom? And that's why Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Father, I've finished the work you've given me to do. I have made you known unto men. And so the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Yes, you know the truth. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. The plan of salvation needed the truth of God poured out in love in order to accomplish its purpose. Thus, love alone was not enough. The truth about God, as Jesus revealed, was required. And where does... Where then does Christ intercede? Where is the focus of his activity? Where is Jesus' energy being applied? His power being utilized? Notice in the next part of the quote. Christ intercedes in behalf of those who have received him. To them he gives power by virtue of his own merits to become members of the royal family, children of the heavenly king. So he's interceding to give power to us. Notice where the intercession is happening. It's all in the quote if you have the design law lens, but we are so blinded by the imposed law lens that we read this and we have this presupposition that God is a wrathful judge who must punish sin. And so we read about Jesus interceding with the power of his blood. He's pleading, my blood, my my blood, Father. And it's all distorted and it keeps us from knowing God. What are his merits? What are merits? They are attributes of character. That's what they are. Thus, those who respond to the truth and love and choose, it says in Romans 5, to open their heart. In Romans 5, we open our heart. He says he pours his love into our hearts. The spirit comes in. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We get a new heart and right spirit. The heart of stone is removed. The heart of flesh is put in. He writes the law in the heart and mind. In other words, the victory and the perfection of Christ, the spirit takes and reproduces it in us. So it's no longer I that live, but This is the merits of Christ empowering or transforming us to be sons and daughters of God because we're restored to Christ-like character. That's where the action is. interceding in your heart and mind to win you to trust, to dispel the lies, and then to free you from fear and selfishness so you can act in love and trust. Jesus said, I have so much more, told his disciples, I have so much more I could tell you, but you can't take it. (laughs) You can't tolerate it yet. When I go, I'll send the Holy Spirit and he'll take it. It's mine to give it to you, basically in doses that you can take. So we can actually inhibit the amount of growth we have by... Um, Resisting truth. Mm-hmm. There you go. Can you want the quote? 
And the Father demonstrates his infinite love for Christ, who paid our ransom with his blood by receiving and welcoming Christ's friends as his friends. What's a ransom? What's its function? What's it do operationally? It's the price necessary to free one held in bondage. What holds sinners in bondage? Lies that we believe and our carnal natures, so the pri- which is our sinfulness. And so the price to free us, the truth that destroys lies, and a new nature that we could never develop on our own. And so the price was paid to whom? Who receives this payment? Who receives the truth to set them free from lies? Who receives a new nature? The price, the ransom price was paid to you and me. When we receive the truth and we open the heart and trust and receive a new nature. It's not paid to God. It's not paid to God's law. It's to us. That was the price necessary. In the same way, if you had a child dying of renal failure and you donate a kidney to save their life, you've paid a price to save your child. But who was the payment made to? To the child. Because they demanded, because some legal action had to be taken, or the condition required this to save them. Our sinful condition required the remedy, and the remedy is truth to destroy lies and a new nature of love. Right? And then, last, last portion of this quote. Speaking of God, he is satisfied... Wait, yeah, yeah that's right. He is satisfied with the atonement made. He is glorified by the incarnation, the life, death, and mediation of his son. Why is God satisfied? If you had a child dying of leukemia, what will be the only thing that actually satisfies you? A cure that puts the cancer into... Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Without the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ, his victory on earth, sinfulness in our hearts and minds would not remit back to God's original perfection that he designed humankind and Adam to be. And thus God was satisfied because Christ accomplished a remedy that will, for all who partake and trust, cause sinfulness in them to be remitted. They will get a new heart and right spirit. They will be new people with new motives. And why is God glorified? Because the lies have been exposed and the truth about God's character, methods, designs, principles have not only been comprehended, but those same principles have resulted in the healing and restoration of his children. He's glorified. His methods work. His methods are the methods of life. His methods heal. His methods restore. His methods cleanse. And that's our witness. And that's our witness. We went to the physician and he healed us. So it's to his glory. I'm going to jump to Wednesday's lesson in the last few minutes. Wednesday's lesson, it's talking about uh, Jesus at the right hand of God, and it says uh, in the middle of the lesson, the right hand of God is a position of authority. Peter's argument, which was based on Scripture, is that it was because Jesus had been elevated to such a position in heaven that he poured out his spirit upon his followers. The exaltation did not grant Jesus a status he did not have before. Instead, it represents, represented the Father's supreme recognition of his prerogatives as Lord and Savior. That almost sounds reasonable, doesn't it? But it's not. This is based on imposed law. This is based on an authoritarian God who makes things happen his way. If you understand design law, you understand the context of the controversy, 
Did the father ever have a recognition problem with his son? No. Did intelligent beings in heaven have a recognition problem? Yes. Yes, they did. They had questions. They had, even the loyal ones had uncertainties because of Satan's lies. So I'm going to read to you out of Revelation chapter 5. And just kind of notice what's happening here. Then I saw, uh, then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with a writing on both sides sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals? Notice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look in it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll and look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, don't weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and, and the uh, seven seals. And I saw the lamb looking as if he'd been slain, standing at the center of the throne encircled by the four living creatures and the elders and the seven horns and the seven eyes, which are seven spirits of God sent uh, throughout the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand. Notice the right hand of God of him who sat on the throne. And it said, then they all sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open the seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased from uh, men, for God and for every, uh, from every tribe, language, and people and nation, you've made them to be a kingdom of priests and to serve our God and they will reign on earth. Then I looked and heard a voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and they said, worthy, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all of them singing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb to be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. So, was this exaltation that we just read about in Revelation 5, was this God coming to some recognition of his Son? Or was this all the other intelligences coming to some recognition of his Son? Why is it important that other intelligences recognize the supremacy of Christ. Well, the last paragraph states, so, in the last paragraph of the lesson, so when Christ's self-sacrifice was authenticated in heaven, Satan had received a decisive blow, and the Spirit was being poured, uh, the Spirit was being poured out to prepare a people for the coming of Christ. What does the lesson mean by the authentication? I don't know why I just stumbled on that. authentication of Christ in heaven, what are they referring to? They're referring to the validating of Christ by his Father. The Father's judicial authority or recognition. That's what they're referring to. But this is a misconstrued under imposed law. If you read uh, uh, what we just read in Revelation 5 and then put together with John chapter 12, 31 and 32, Jesus says, Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world is to be driven out, and I, I am lifted up, will draw all unto myself. Or all men, that's what it says in the NIV, all men. This is from the remedy, and we'll probably have to close on this. Now is the time for the infection of selfishness and sin in the world to be fully diagnosed and revealed as destructive. Now Satan, the prince of the selfish world, will be driven out into the open, out of the shadows, out from behind his lies and distortions about God and God's methods, out where all can see him as the murderer he truly is, and thus out of the hearts of all who love me. When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all intelligences throughout the universe to me. Yes. This, what you read in Revelation 5, and the coronation of Christ and all the intelligence throughout the whole universe, recognizing who Christ truly is, drives Satan out. This is not an act of a powerful magistrate making an authoritative ruling. This is the power of truth and love 
transforming and residing and settling beings into the truth of who God is, also who Satan is, they see him exposed for who he is, such that they can never be moved. Satan's power over them is broken. And God is waiting now today on earth for a people on earth to experience the same thing that we just read about in Revelation 5, that we can have that truth and love so settled into our hearts and minds, it's called the sealing, by the way, being so settled into the truth, both intellectually and spiritually, he cannot be moved. Then the end comes. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you and the Spirit and the Son are unified, interceding in our behalf to heal and free us from the lies and the infection of fear and selfishness to restore in us the perfection that Jesus achieved. We ask that your Spirit will take all Christ's achievements, reproduce it in us, so that it won't be our sinful selves, but it will be you living in us, and we can be your friends. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.